So hello, everyone. This is Brian Bulaya from We Don't Know Yet, a podcast about self-discovery and development. So life is a scary process, and we want to make that process a little less scary. So today we have the great opportunity of sitting down with Danielle Sirabasi. She is a global relocation executive and co-founder of Expat Africa 360. And we have the awesome opportunity to talk today about her experiences within international business, uh, international development, and talking about how her creative process has been intertwined within her creative life, her professional life, and her personal life. So Danielle, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me, Brian. Glad to be here. Sweet, sweet. Thank you so much. So before we get started, uh, I kind of want to let everyone know how we met, because I don't know if you remember this story. So I think this was, I think when I was back in grad school, if you guys don't know, like I'm a very, um, I would say like sometimes I'm a little too much. So I was reaching out to everyone who had went to the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign in the past, and Danielle's name popped up as one of the leaders within international development in D.C. So I reached out to her. I was sending her um, a personal message like, hey, can I have five minutes of your time just to talk about all these different things as it relates to African issues? And thankfully, you responded. Um, I don't know if you remember that. I definitely remember that. And I remember a very long and interesting phone conversation <laughs> about uh, your career in D.C. and the international development space. But I was uh, happy to meet you. So many, so many conversations. And now you know, I'm, I'm so super, super happy to, to call your friend and uh, to have this conversation. So I think my first question, um, maybe to set the stage for everyone, um, what exactly do you do? And what exactly is Expat Africa 360? And what sort of experiences kind of led you in this direction of international development and entrepreneurship? Yes. Um, so I will try to keep this first answer brief, um, but it's a very long and winding journey um, that brought me here where I am today. And um, it kind of all makes sense. So maybe I should just start at the beginning. Is that okay? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Start, start from the beginning, wherever you want to start that story off. Cool. Okay. So I um, grew up in the Chicago suburbs. Um, I was in a fairly homogenous neighborhood except for my block. So my block was, um, you know, my little suburban block, just like you see in the movies. Uh, we had, you know, big lawn and all the kids playing out in the sprinklers. And But my block, what was different was that we were very diverse. So it was like a mini United Nations. So our backstore neighbors were from China and our next door neighbors were from England. Um, I had neighbors from Pakistan and neighbor, uh, my directly um, diagonal neighbor was, uh, his father was from Kenya. So, and then we were the Italian Jewish family, the Italian American family. So we had just a lot of diversity going on and all the kids would, you know, go from one house to the other and, you know, taste all different food and be exposed to uh, Muslim prayers and, and then go to church down the block. And it was just sort of this really eclectic, interesting kind of uh, space to grow up in. In the meantime, I was an extremely creative child, right? So I, uh, I would rush home to write 
poetry and novels, even like from a really young age. And I would um, draw, I would draw and I would paint and um, all that kind of stuff in my basement. So I was not, I was not allowed to play video games or watch like, I think, I think it was like more than an hour of TV a day, which was really annoying as a kid, but I'm really thankful for that now that I'm older. Um, so I either had to like go outside and play with uh, my neighbor kids or I had, or I had to find some, some way to occupy myself in the house. So um, looking at where I am today, it kind of makes sense because um, when I asked my parents to go to art school in high school, they said no. Um, they were like, no, we're not letting you do that. Um, and so my second option was to um, study international relations. So I went to the University of Illinois where I studied international relations with a concentration on development and Africa. And I took a lot of classes in um, political science and anthropology and history and um, was studying French. And while I was in school, there was actually an opportunity to um, for me to get my first experience organizing. So community organizing, because I got a I had a friend who was about to graduate and um, she was in the French department and she said, Danielle, there's a, there's a group of Congolese um, green card lottery winners here in Champaign. And I had no idea what any of those words meant. <laughs> I didn't know where Congo was. I didn't know what a, what a green card was. I had no idea about any of that. So, uh, but she said, if you want to practice your French, um, they're looking for, for help. And they approached the university, you know, for French speakers to help them um, get acclimated to the U.S., so I went into it with very selfish reasons um, to practice my French, and I ended up really uh, just having a very, um, I think that was like a milestone in my personal and professional career because I learned so much working with them, um, so much about myself, so much about organizing, so much about intercultural communications and expectations and um, how, to, how to help people in, in a way where it doesn't feel like helping them, you know, cause it's really easy to be patronizing and condescending when you're, when you're helping adults, um, who need help, but don't want to feel like they're being helped and, um, just, you know, just basic communication. So that really, really opened my eyes. I did that for three years and I was, um, basically, um, organized a student run group that we were, we were basically mentors to these Congolese green card winners and okay. helping them figure out things like, um, housing, you know, how to get a house, how to navigate, um, how, when, what happens when you get a credit card in the mail? Um, what does a DUI mean and how not to get one? Um, how to get a, get a job, all of these different things, um, practicing English, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I, after I worked with the Congolese, I really started thinking to myself, like, where are they all coming from and why are they coming to the U S and what is it like where they come from? And, at that time I, as well, I think that was the year that I was studying microfinance in school and economic opportunity in Africa. Because um, what I had always known, which is the same as most Americans, is that, um, you know, Africa is basically a huge welfare continent and it's just a, you know, charity case and people there are just in constant misery and in need of uh, the West um, to help them. So, but that kind of really wasn't my experience with the Congolese here. So I started asking questions and um, I had to study abroad as part of my curriculum, as part of my de degree. So I ended up going to Senegal in 2009 and I worked as a microfinance intern and I stayed with a family. So mm. I lived here 10 years ago and um, it was a completely life-changing experience. I, 
Yeah, go ahead. Wait, so quick, quickly, so was that experience right at the end of your undergraduate experience or was that? Yes. Yes, it was at the end of my undergraduate. So I had a, it was just my, my I think my last semester I spent here. Um, so I actually didn't go to my graduation because yeah. um, I was here. But um, but yeah, so, so it was a very, very life-changing experience. Just um, so many, so many different um, so many different categories. I mean, racial awareness, religious, uh, exploration, spiritual discovery, um, mysticism, uh, socioeconomic right. awareness, um, geopolitics on a local level and just, just understanding, just understanding in a very deep way how culture, like, I think, I don't know if you guys have ever seen, have you ever seen the cultural iceberg picture before? Are you, are you talking about when the most of the iceberg is like underwater and it's subsurface and then you have just a, a little bit at the top? Is that what you're referring to? Yeah. So often they use that uh, an iceberg as like a metaphor for a lot of different things. But what the cultural iceberg is like, you know, the tip of the iceberg is like food and language and music and just kind of your surface level when you first get go somewhere to travel. That's kind of what you see. But then below the surface is... Um, you know, um, family dynamics and conceptions of good and evil and, um, you know, gesture, like nonverbal communication and anticipating how people are thinking and when they think and reactions to things. And when you really, really get integrated somewhere, you, you start to adopt those, that, that mindset. And that's kind of what happened to me. Um, and I've never really gotten over it. So it made it very difficult when I came back to the States to reintegrate. And it's sort of, you know, it's culture shock to some extent, but it's also you you just really, really absorb this dual personality, this um, so like sort of, um, what's the word? Um, just sort of a, a dual identity in, internally, right? So a lot of people say too, when you learn another language, so I, I became fluent in French and Wolof you kind of develop this ulterior personality within the context that you learn those languages in. So it became very difficult for me to um, not work with Africa when I came home. And I, you know, was extremely motivated to do something um, to stay connected and to do my part. So I worked with a chamber of commerce in Chicago that was, um, uh, was really run by a Nigerian guy. And um, I worked for that for a while doing market linkage analysis and planning events and um, doing investment promotion for Nigeria and Cameroon and some of the English speaking countries. And then um, I also. Mm -hmm. And Senator Daniel, what year was this? What year did this take place? This was in what, 2010. This was in 2010. And then, um, uh, sorry, this is really long. Feel free to cut me off if you need to. <laughs> um, no, I love this. I love this because it, it paints a picture for us too, right? That you're coming from this um, community organizing grassroots level. And I remember us talking about how you worked with some of the Congolese community within Champagne mm -hmm. um, and Urbana. And that, you know, some of those contacts were individuals that I went and talked to as well, like at some of the different churches mm -hmm. or um, some of the different uh, groups that were available within that, that area. Um, so you're coming from this organizing background and it helped to shape who you are and, and, and define what development means or define what um, transformative change looks like. And coming from it from all these very various standpoints, mm -hmm. um, 
So when people hear your story, at least that backstory, they're like, oh, well, she must be uh, working for a nonprofit now. She must be, you know, doing a lot of like grassroots level things. But that's, you know, maybe a small subset of what you do, but you're more focused on like what the private sector can do to help further transformative change. Yeah. So when did when did that shift happen? Because you talked a lot about microfinance and some of the work that you've yeah. done with, you know, the Chamber of Commerce and everything like that. Yeah. So let me let me back up really quickly to answer that question. So while I was in Senegal living with a family, um, I and I would mention briefly how in, quote unquote integrated I was, uh, it was really clear that the nonprofits and the NGOs that were working in Senegal were really missing the point in terms of being there on the ground, um, imposing these develop, so-called development projects that really were not um, uh, compatible with local culture and the local lifestyle and routine and mentality that I mentioned that I was becoming so intimately aware of. I knew that these projects that they were kind of forcing down everyone's throats, like the solar oven that was just really badly constructed and um, didn't really make the quantity of food that people needed and couldn't cook meat properly. Um, but, you know, these French people thought that that was like the solution to everyone's problems. And this became really obvious to me since I was coming from a internal... I was sort of on the inside. I had an insider's perspective, and I just knew that what was being done was very paternalistic and very top-down, and it didn't um, involve the women. It didn't ask anyone that I was that I knew and that I lived with what their opinions were. Um, so for me, development right off the bat had left a very um, just it, you know at best it was just ineffective, and at worst it was just sort of a very patronizing approach. Um, do you know, how can you solve someone's problems if you don't ask them what they think they, you know, if you don't know them, you don't get to know what their issues really are. So, um, that really kind of, uh, but so over the, over time I was working for this chamber of commerce, but I saw a lot of issues with that in terms of, um, the communication barrier in terms of how Americans conceive of Africa and how African conceive of themselves sometimes. And when you say private sector and when you say Africa, it sometimes doesn't really click. So we had a lot of trouble getting people to think about Africa in terms of business development and opportunity, especially in the United States, um, instead of just this, like I said, charity case. Um, or, uh, you know, uh, the other problem is just like a different expectation in terms of sophistication and, um, you know, what, what the expectations are when you're talking to investors and you're talking to um uh, businessmen in other countries, sometimes the communication just isn't there. So, uh, so anyway, I, um, that was in 2010 and there was a, there wasn't a lot of money going into, um, cause I was also working for the African immigration organization at the same time. So I was kind of working two part-time jobs and the money just wasn't there. And the state of Illinois was not, didn't really have a lot of money at its disposal. So some funding got cut. So I ended up having to, um, so really quickly, I took a detour to St. Louis, Missouri, and I worked for a global relocation company there for two years. And um, part of the reason I moved to St. Louis is because I actually had um, gotten married to a, a man from Ivory Coast, from Cote d'Ivoire, who I had met um, abroad. And so, because um, I was in France, I left that part out for a year teaching English. And while I was there, after it was after school. I brought him to the United States and we lived in St. Louis for two years. 
Um, and that's, uh, you guys can ask questions later if you care to know more about that, but it did not end well. And, um, he ended up getting deported. So, um, after that two year stint doing global, glo- yeah, global relocation, um, I moved to DC. So I was in DC for the past from 2012 until 2017 last year. Um, and the reason I moved to DC is because, you know, everyone was saying, if you want to work with Africa, you should go to DC. And that's, that's the hub of everything Africa. So I went there. And of course, I started out in the nonprofit sector or the NGO sector. I was working with a lot of, um, organizations that were funded by USAID, the US government, um, doing these so-called development projects. So I worked a lot with economic development, managing these multi-million dollar projects. Um, all across the continent. So I got a really good feel for the grant process and contracting and um, that the U.S. government is really the client and not local people. And it was more of the same issue that I had seen on the ground. Um, so I had like a fundamental disagreement with how things were going and um, just these global experts, so-called experts that um, just were refusing to, you know, for example, Skype in our local team and ask them what they thought about our proposal strategy um, so they were left out of the process a lot. And I think after like three years or so, I decided, um, that, you know, there was a lot of talk in DC around this time too, about private sector and that Africa needs private sector, uh, involvement. That's, you know, the, the ticket that's like, um, that market driven solutions is like the way to, the way forward for Africa to be to, for a sustainable development model and not, um, these huge government issued grants. So I started the U S Africa chamber of commerce in 2014. Um, there, there was no other chamber of commerce at the time, uh, dedicated to Africa. And it was in response to the U S um, there was the African leaders summit. So there was, I think 56, that was a lot. I think there was, it was a lot. It was, I think 56 is enough. Isn't it 52 or 54? Yeah. I can't keep up with exactly. how many countries there are now. I think uh, how many African countries? Yeah. I think there are fifty-five now with South Sudan. With South Sudan, okay. Then it wasn't yeah. fifty. It wasn't it wasn't fifty-six then, but whatever. It was like a it was a vast majority of the countries were represented, and there was a lot of talks about private sector. So um, it was in response to that summit. But anyway, that was a I did the Chamber of Commerce uh, for a few years. It was really active. We did a lot of things, um, a lot of workshops and events and forums. Um, again, trying to. In drive in, generate interest um, in the U.S. in terms of thinking about Africa differently and changing Africa's brand and um, bringing African companies here and getting them exposure. And it went well, but um, it was not a salaried position. I had a hard time paying staff and myself for a time. And so last year I came to Senegal and um, that had been sort of a thing since 2009. I'd wanted to come back. So I came back last year and um, took until I think February for me to really think about what I had to bring to the table, um, which was experience with relocation, experience with international communication and business and um, just a real love for the continent and a real um, motivation to be part of this um, movement toward um, Africa becoming an international player. And I hate saying Africa too, because I really know the Senegalese context more than any other country, but and every country is different, but there, but I can talk more about this local context, but one of the needs locally in terms of like, I wanted to be in the private sector. I don't, didn't want to work for the UN. I didn't want to work for, um, you know, 
child child beggars and things like I didn't want to have that that focus. I wanted to be part of the the private sector movement. So um, one of the needs here that's not being met is global relocation services. So some of these uh, all of these private sector companies, but also NGOs and embassies that are coming to Senegal, which is more and more and more. Uh, actually, it's increasing really quickly. Um, nobody's here on the ground helping them find a doctor, find housing, um, get acquainted with the culture, understand the language, travel outside the city. Um, it's really scary for people that come here to work. So they end up just going to the office and going home. So um, we started a company to respond to that need. And I think I'm I'm really well placed to help people. I kind of can understand both sides of the coin um, and put myself in their shoes and um so yeah, that's kind of where I am today. So I'm, I'm st- I started this business, and we're working every day to build it, and it's gotten really good response so far. No, I love that because you touched on a few different things, and the one thing that I I do love is that through your efforts, regardless of whatever business that you're entrenched in or immersed in, you're always thinking about. Like you said, how do you combat? Um, I had a professor uh, at University of Illinois, um, Professor um, Faranak Maraftab. She always discussed um, what does development in the global south look like um, in reality, like on the ground, not through these academic right. theoretical lenses, but how do you push back on the single story? Like you said, just how you said Africa is the amalgamation of 55, 56 countries there isn't just a one African story. Absolutely. There isn't just one layer by which everyone subscribes to. And through your efforts now with uh, Expat Africa 360 is thinking about how do we ensure that um, individuals are able to do great work and have the amenities and services Absolutely. needed to do that work. So how do you, because you, you touched on a key challenge. And I think for entrepreneurs, one of the key challenges that we have is sustaining the business when it comes to right. a financial lens. So you're talking about one of the challenges, making sure that you yourself are, are having um, the, your your needs met. You're living in the D.C. DMV area, very expensive to live in. You have staff you need to pay for. I'm sure with Expat 360, you have certain key thresholds you need to meet financially. So how how are you able to meet those like what is like your maybe not extensively what does your business model look like but how are you able to tap into various pools of money so that you can mm-hmm. do what you need to do and get mm-hmm. what absolutely to okay so uh with the u.s africa chamber of commerce the challenge with that was that it wasn't necessarily um it was a non-profit so it was it was a little bit different than the business I'm, I'm running now. And the reason is, is that uh, a nonprofit has to depend on donations and grant money and membership fees to survive. And the the challenge with that is that you're not um, you're not necessarily responding to a pain point. You're doing a service that people enjoy and um, people will participate in. But in order for it to be a fully functional a growing organization. It requires a lot of proposal writing and a lot of over, like very administratively heavy work in order to make it function, which is, which is difficult. And so we were always only able to raise enough money to continue um, the minimum, like making events uh, happen. But in terms of paying staff, I mean, we would have had to spend all of our time, um, 
yeah. writing proposals and, and getting board members that would actually contribute financially. So that was the challenge with that. What I find to be easier with Expat Africa 360 or having a private sector entrepreneur uh, entrepreneurial uh, endeavor is that you are responding to a pain point. So we've, we've taken time to do market research. We've taken time to look at who our client, our um, target audience is. And um, these companies that come here don't have time to be, um, you know, sifting through all of the available, like long and short term housing. Like where do you buy appliances and how do you get your SIM card and your Wi-Fi set up? I mean, all of these things are, extremely necessary and needed and you know they're coming here and they want to hit the ground running to be profitable so for us it was just a very obvious pain point that needed to be responded to and we were we were right about that because when we met with people it's it's been really well um, received so so we're in we're in contract um we're in negotiation with a few contracts now so i think it's about understanding your market and responding to pain points which is a lot easier to be nimble as a private sector company than it is as a nonprofit. But for every entrepreneur that's out there, of course, it's a transition period. So to get your immediate needs met, you have to work, you know, you have to work on something else at the same time, right? So I uh, teach English and I do translation and, um, you know, I do a, a few other things. I also do art. So I sell I sell paintings here when I can. Um, so that's always helpful. But um, but yeah, it's a sacrifice and it's a transition. So it kind of all those things have to be taken into consideration. Yeah, I think that's a great point as well because many times individuals think that entrepreneurship is a jump off the cliff, like go head first into whatever business that you're in, which is true, right? You want to make sure that you're fully immersed in whatever initiative that you're a part of, but you have just described this, um, this way in which you mediate risk. And so you're saying like how, you know, selling art, something that you love to do is, um, or, or first of all, just creating the art and then selling the art is something that you love and it's one revenue stream. Um, you'll have other okay. initiatives such as, you know, translation, um, cause you're, uh, fluent in Wolof and fluent in English, you're able to leverage, um, transactions and things of that nature. Then you have expat mm-hmm. uh, uh-huh. Africa 360. So it's like all these different things that you have your hand in that way that you are stable. You're you know, just, everything is, uh, all your needs are being met and you're able to move expeditiously towards all these different destinations concurrently. That's wonderful. Um, I was actually mm-hmm. curious because I'm, um, yeah, that's, I think, I mean, obviously back when you were there, no, no, go ahead. I think you said you first went there to Senegal in 2009 um, and you became better at like French and the language, et cetera. But now in 2018, currently mm. as deep into your career mm-hmm. as you are, do you still receive any type of cultural pushback or pushback from individuals that you work with there, even though, I mean, you've been there for so long, but since you have like an, a, another culture from here in the U S is there still any type of barriers you face in that way or are things smooth for you now? Um, I don't think they'll ever be smooth. Uh, I can say that it's, uh, oh, being, being a white person living in Africa is extremely humbling. Um, and it should be right. Because if you are not humbled living here, then you are probably living in a bubble, um, which there are plenty of those, but I don't live in those neighborhoods. (laughs) So, um, yeah, so it's, uh, it's extremely difficult, but 
uh, I, back in 2009, nobody was talking about white privilege, but it was definitely something that I couldn't put a name to. And then I felt I was for the first time aware of, and, um, you as a minority, as an extreme minority, you tend to, you kind of like turn, uh, turn in on yourself, not just skin color, but culturally. And I mean, you're always kind of doing things quote unquote wrong, you know, and you're getting laughed at constantly and you're missing, missing the point. And even when you think you're doing well and the language is coming along, like there's always moments where you're just totally clueless. And, um, and so it's a, it hurts your pride. And, you know, over time you little by little, uh, you know, more and more, but, um, and then, you know, that was quickly, as a side note, that transferred over to when I went back to the U.S., uh, I had a totally different experience with regard to African-Americans because uh, I think before that, um, I'm, I was a totally, totally different, uh, I was in a totally different consciousness before that because, um, you know, I would, I would always say, you know, Africans are so much nicer than, you know, African-Americans. And I think a lot of white people are guilty of saying that. And it's just... Yeah. horribly like it's horribly like uh embarrassing to to know that I used to think like that um but you know I I the good news is is that I always um try to to learn and prove myself wrong so I I just read a lot of like W. Du Bois and Marcus Garvey and uh Malcolm X's autobiography and um mm. uh revolutionary suicide and things like that so I got really really into black literature and um really, really into it. And even today, I mean, I read a lot and talk a lot to people and ask different people questions that I would have never asked before. And I think that's just part of the part of it. So that transfers back over to Africa, right? Because now I have this other awareness where I would never people like Rachel, what's her name? Dolezal, whatever is like, like, it's just so wrong on so many levels. If I'm walking on the street, people see me as, as a tubab. If they yeah. see me as a white person and I get lots of things like not just cat calls, but I get downright racism. I get really, uh, mean people sometimes, um, telling me to go back to my country and why am I even here? And, uh, just really, really nasty things. Um, some days are better than others, but I think when you come into a situation where you have that expanded consciousness and you can, easily move in and out of different social spheres and different, different mentalities and cultures. And you've, you have that understanding because you've actually tried to learn. Um, you, once people talk to me, they understand that it's not, it's not maybe what they think, you know, I'm not saying I know everything. I, there's a lot that I, I need, you know, that, that is left for me to learn. But I think once people talk to me, they understand that maybe it's not what it seems and that I have a background that's, uh, you know, allowed me to, um, relate to people on a deeper level. Right. Okay. Um, and I, I have one more question, Danielle, and it, it might be a little bit personal, but I'm, I'm very curious about this. Uh, and it comes from the point of view, uh, uh, my mother, she, she's a civil engineer and she's told me many of her experiences in Africa, in Nigeria, um, working with men there, uh, and just, just, being an African woman in that area, there were a lot of advances by men in that area uh, that were just downright, just too forward and d- disgusting in a way. Now you're already, you know, you're you're white in Africa, so you have that. But do you think do you, do you have any uh, unique experiences as a woman working in that area um, that 
are, are still challenging for you somewhat, if you would want to discuss that? Mm, absolutely. Good question. Um, definitely. So, yeah, um, I think I, I've been told before that uh, peop- men here, men, African men say things to white women that they wouldn't dare saying to a black woman. Um, which is not just out. I mean, I think a lot of, uh, I think I've heard that too from African Americans. Like there's just this, this level, there's a stereotype, right? There's this bad reputation that you can get away with things more with white women that will accept doing things with you that we wouldn't, that a black woman would never accept. So there's, there's that fun piece that I have to, that I have to overcome whenever I'm interacting with anyone, um, especially a certain generation of men. But I, I would say Nigerian men have this particular reputation that might be worse than other countries. Oh <laughs> my God. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard oh, that. I'm sorry. I'm Nigerian, Nigerian and I hear this so much. <laughs> I mean, if you're hearing it a lot, there might be some truth to it. Um, but, uh, I'm, but I, but I would say that it's probably like everyone has the same thoughts, but maybe they're not as aggressive about it. Um, in in terms of other and from other countries. But, uh, yeah, when I was working for the Nigerian, um, the Nigerian gentleman in Chicago for his chamber of commerce, and I was, you know, really excited about this event that I had helped plan for the investment promotion. It was a big event. We, we did on Navy pier. It was really, you know, high, high class or whatever. A lot of people came and I was really excited because I was fresh out of school and I had just gotten back from teaching English in France. And I was really excited to, um, meet people and network and, you know, really get into it. And what ended up happening was, uh, I think, I mean, everyone who came was like flirting with me and I, I was really, ins- I remember being really insulted. Um, and I didn't know how to handle it because, you know, here I am, I just worked for four years. I have, you know, pretty good experience so far and I'm taking myself seriously and I'm not thinking of myself as like a woman first, right. I'm just Danielle, but yeah. all these men are seeing me as, uh, something else. And this one guy was uh, asking me, he said there was going to be an after party at his hotel and all these men were going to be there and they were going to be networking. And, um, did I have any friends that I wanted to invite? And I, and I really quickly caught on that, like, this is not a, this is not a, I said, so who's going to be there? And he was avoiding the question. Mm-hmm. Turns out it was just, you know, just like a one, a one person or two people party right in his room. And, um, I was really, really insulted. And he's like, well, you know, like we've worked really, like we've come a long way. We had a really long flight. It's been a really long day. And, you know, we just want to relax <laughs> with you. <laughs> oh, oh, and I was yeah. just like, yeah, it was really, I was really offended, you know, and that's been a common, common theme, like especially with the US Africa Chamber of Commerce. I heard a, a lot, a lot, a lot behind my back to my face, uh, you know, what is a 28 year old white woman doing running a chamber of commerce? I I think I wrote a piece, actually wrote a blog piece on my LinkedIn about this. Um, and just, you know, some, something like I don't have the right as first and foremost as a white person, but also as a woman and also being quote unquote young, which is just so, uh, irrelevant to me. But so constantly having to, you know, and someone came up to me and said, are you an intern? And I was like, no, I'm the founder and president. And they're like, <laughs> and they're just like stared at me with like this wide, like, really? And I was like, why is that surprising to you? And they just couldn't answer. They're like, no, no, no. I mean, it sounds really bad. I didn't mean it that way. Um, but it just becomes, you know, you have to have thick skin. Certain cultures, I mean, I think it would be the same if I worked in India or, you know, Saudi Arabia or something. I mean, 
being a woman in the business world is, um, there's a reason there's not a lot of women in business and it's not because we're not capable. It's just because, uh, these barriers that you deal with, these, uh, stereotypes and preconceived notions and things that you just constantly have to overcome. And just, you know, when you meet people, instead of it being an intellectual conversation, it's right off the bat, they're looking you up and down and thinking about you in a different way. And it's, it's really, it can be really unnerving, but you know, it's, it's, it, there comes a point where you have to make a choice. And I know it's, you know, it's not a very popular assertion to make, but I'll make it anyway, as I think that, um, sexism and racism falls under the same category, the same umbrella term of, of, um, power dynamics. So the same Mm -hmm. feeling that a black person might feel a black man, let's say walking down the street in, uh, in Manhattan, you know, or on wall street or wherever, where it's majority white, he might get, he might be sick of having to deal with preconceived notions like all the time, these little microaggressions and stares and he knows what everyone's thinking about him and he has to overcome that at every turn. It's the same thing for women. Um, so it can be very exhausting, but there's a choice, like I said, that you have to make at some point is, are you going to let that bring you down? Are you going to let that upset you every single time? Or are you going to find ways around that? Are you going to find, um, catchphrases in your pocket that you can come out and make it funny and laugh it off and at the same time be firm so that people know, you know, that I'm someone to be respected. I'm not someone to, um, you know, think what you want, but, uh, you need to respect me and, um, not everything in your head needs to come out of your mouth. <laughs> like we're here for professional yeah. reasons only. And so, yeah, I mean, I'm not perfect every time, you know, sometimes it gets to me, but, uh, in general, I try to, I try to have thick skin. In just the past few years, like that's yeah. one of the biggest things that I, yeah. And I've, uh, learned about you is that you kind of regardless of whatever barrier or situation that you're going through, you're just like blasting through it. Like, I just need to keep going. You have like this really full armor. Like you said, that armor does get, you know, Nick is little nicks and pierces at different times, but you do have that thick skin and and trying to make sure that whatever you want to get accomplished gets accomplished. And that's huge. I think that I remember when, um, I don't know if you remember this, but it was, November 9th last year. Wow. And (laughs) I remember it because it was like the election just passed and you were like, I was like, so what are you going to do? Like, I was like, what are you going to do now? You're like, yeah, I think, I think it's time for for me to move on. I think think it's time for me to go and uh, try some new things and I'll come back to DC later. Um, and I will never forget that, that conversation because we were both just in that hazy world that we were in, um, trying to figure everything out. So you talked a lot about dealing with, um, some of the different microaggressions that you've had to deal with. You had to deal with, uh, your own bouts with sexism, racism, and all these in this, this very patriarchal ecosystem that we all move through, right? Where, uh, individuals are giving certain power. Uh, versus others and you're still trying to find ways that you can um, create change and create like um, new processes um, where people are being uplifted and um, can benefit so my question for you is because obviously you say you 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 do art and you do these one for those who don't know Danielle's art it's a lot of it are depictions and Danielle correct me if I'm wrong but a lot of depictions of life in Senegal, life in 
various aspects of Africa and showcasing um, these really rich narratives of African life. And so do you ever feel like these depictions of art that you do and the people that you sell to, does that ever help to connect you more or help to kind of break down some of those, um, I don't know, social uh, challenges that you may, that you described earlier? Like how does art kind of play a role in that? Mm. Um, I think, so I've been an artist all my life, but I, this is the first time that I've really sold art, which is interesting because, um, Americans don't really have the same, the same taste for art that Europeans do. Cause there's a lot of Europeans here in Senegal actually that come here regularly, like gal, uh, gallery, how do you say it? Gallerists? I don't know how to say it in English people that work at galleries in Europe that come here to procure pieces and then sell them for like triple the price back in Europe, which you can actually do that. But I don't think you would ever be able to do that in in the U S maybe, I don't know, but I was never in those circles anyways. Art was just something that I kind of just did as a energy outlet, um, back home. It was never with like a market and audience in mind, but, um, I think, yeah, so the art that I do is pretty spontaneous. It's hard for me to do it regularly as like a career, which is part of the reason I haven't pursued it seriously before this. But Senegal has a really, really dynamic, there's sort of like this artistic renaissance going on in Senegal, in Dakar. It's actually known as um, like an art hub in West Africa, especially with the Francophone countries. Um, so a lot of, a lot of Malians and there was a, a month long expo that I participated in this year and there was a lot of Malians and Beninois and Togolais and Ivoirian. They were all coming to Dakar to show their work. Um, so that was really cool. And it's, and I'm part of an, a new artist collective and every other month we do ex- themed expos and, um, it just allows me to kind of be myself. Nobody cares that I didn't go to like art school and, um, if I sell something great, if I don't, like I'm not heartbroken about it, but for me, art has always been extremely personal. And, um, the thing, the work that I do is inspired by, I would say like human emotions and human situations, like you said. Um, so, you know, there, it's like the emotion that is either internal or between people. So I like, scenes of like, um, like an older person, like telling stories to a child or hair braiding or, um, two little girls looking over a wall into their neighborhood and imagining, you know, what it would be like to be grown up and, um, scenes like that. You know, the other thing I like to paint a lot or draw a lot is, uh, like I used to really like fantasy stuff before I started traveling. So like, um, you know, mermaids and like things that don't really exist but it's translated into mythology so this one piece that I'm currently working on um it was a drawing that I did back in school but it's it's going to be like a bigger uh painting is uh like a um Cameroon the it's a myth it's a myth from Cameroon where uh like back when women used to run things back at the beginning of time women were these sorceress uh, sorceress queens and men were kind of like their servants that's how the myth the story goes and uh and so how did men yeah, so yeah. i guess they all conspired together one day all the men did like how can we overthrow the women and so they all impregnated them at the same time and when all the women were like giving birth the men like took over and took all the power um so 
I am, it may, it, it may become like a series. I don't know, but the, the painting I'm currently working on is the, he's just like, um, sorcerer's queens kind of overlooking all these men, um, venerating them, which is interesting, but yeah. So I'm like, do you know the name of that Cameroonian myth? The name of it? I'm, I'm not sure. I'm sure it has a few names maybe in like a local language, but, um, I don't remember the name. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's, <laughs> wow. Uh, that's, that's super good. Mm-hmm. No, I'm just, just thinking aloud, but I'm thinking when people see like your depiction of something that um, they may connect to or something that they may interact with or something, maybe that myth was something that they heard their grandparents say, you know, when they were a child. And so when they see your depiction or your version of that, um, that starts a dialogue and now it's no longer um, like this, this, this white woman who's, who's done this painting. It's like this individual who has heard the story, has digested the story and is able to bring a fresh look onto the story. It's something that I may have heard when I was younger. And so I have a connection or some sort of, uh, um, I want to interface with that person more and have a dialogue with them. That's at least what I'm looking from this perspective, that's kind of the exchange that I see. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, that's, that's the idea. That's the hope anyway, you know, like, um, when I, when I participated in the expo this year, um, that was, that was surprising to some people when they were looking at my pieces and saw like, uh, the, the hair braider, like the, the grandmother that was braiding her granddaughter. Um, people were really surprised (laughs) who the artist was. Um, but, and so that, you know, sparked a conversation and people talking to me and, um, realized like where that comes from and the fact that I've seen those scenes before in person. And I know like I can, and I've had it done to me, even though I've been like older and it's just like such an important bonding experience for, uh, for women and for families and for children. You know, there's like a lot of, it, this is like, you know, you're forced to be with your grandmother or your mother for like hours and hours and hours on end. And, um, you know, those are like really important, um, bonding experiences. So yeah, like just the fact that I have some background on that stuff personally, that I can speak to those things and, uh, maybe gives me some legitimacy, but again, I'm not really looking for legitimacy. I just kind of know what I know and I have accumulated these experiences, but I'm not looking to be like, I'm not looking for like street cred. I'm not looking for people this, you know, like I'm not, it's not it's hard to explain, but I'm not like, I'm not really out there for people to be like, Oh, like this white girl, she's not like other white girls. Like, I really don't like when people say, um, Danielle, you're, you're like black on the inside. Like a lot of Senegalese like to say that to me. And I mean, I get what they're saying and I'm flattered and I like that because I do feel this sort of like deep affinity for certain things here, such as like a responsibility toward your parents when they are out, when they're, um, old and, especially family dynamics that I think uh, at least a lot of white people in the U S have lost. Um, so there's certain, certain things that I agree with them on and that I, they, I can relate to them on, but, but it's also important for me to like be who I am. And I am, I guess I'm just like an anomaly now and I'm just sort of in my own category and that's okay. <laughs> yeah. That's in Seema's favorite word. <laughs> You know, um, Daniel, I'm curious. It's what? Whose favorite word? Um, um, be, 
what my brand or like the, the fitness business I own, Break the Bar, one of the sayings is be an anomaly. So that's why Ryan said Oh, that. funny. <laughs> yeah. But um, Danielle, Danielle, I'm curious because we have like, I know we have a lot of young listeners that listen into this, a lot of young entrepreneurs too, that would be probably interested in, you know, you're an amazing artist and that's obviously a big facet of like your life and your enjoyment. You're an amazing businesswoman. So I think people would be curious on, what are the habits you have maybe daily or things you do or don't do that allow you to be so just amazingly productive? Because <laughs> it's just like I'm listening to you. I'm just like, God dang, how does she have the time <laughs> <laughs> to do all of this? And what is she doing each day that just keeps her so focused? So I don't know how you want to go about that. But like, yeah, how do you do what you do? Well, that's funny because I actually got asked that today too by someone else. But uh, what I can say is what not to do, which I've learned <laughs> from, is not to put in 70 hours a week, right? I really, which is what I was doing with uh, when I was uh, running the U.S. Africa Chamber of Commerce is I had a full-time job. So I would work from, you know, 9 to 6 and then from 6 to 11 or 12, I would just do nothing but, you know, I'd just be working all the time. You know, it was really hard to balance uh, life and work. And I did that for three years and I never really got anywhere. So I'm really a big proponent of, of work smart, not work more work. You know, so if you're if you find yourself working that much, it's probably because you're doing something wrong. Um, because right now, I think what I've been able to do and I actually started out doing that when I came to Senegal. I had a full time job when I first arrived here. I was working for a consulting firm Um but it, it was totally unsustainable and I had to make a choice at a certain point. If I really don't want to have a boss anymore, um, then I need to make some sacrifices. And luckily I had some savings. So before I left DC, I had spent eight months. I was working as an Uber driver. I was dog sitting and I was a, a waitress um, in addition to building websites. So I did it because I knew that there was going to be this transition period and I needed a cushion of savings. So when I came to Senegal, I didn't have to worry that much and I didn't have to depend on a nine to five job because I had savings set aside. So what it allowed me to do was quit my job, which had some other reasons I quit as well, um, and make that decision to be my own boss and do something that was um, financially sustainable on the side that would give me flexibility. So the advantage is what I'm doing now is I don't have to be in an office. I can take students according to my own schedule. Um, I can do, I can work from home and I set my own hours. So what that allows is for me to focus on my business, which I really need to be focused on, especially during the day. So it allows me freedom to, let's say someone needs, uh, like, you know, if I wasn't doing it this way, it'd be very difficult if someone, a potential client asked for a meeting you know, they're like, oh, tomorrow afternoon at two. I and mean, what are you supposed to do? Right. You're at work at, a, at an office job. So um, I, it was really important to me to have several revenue streams, be flexible um, and and uh, commit the time to your to your business. If you really want to see it work, you need to be available and you need to put the time in. And a lot of people, I think, are scared to make that commitment. Like you were saying, I think that's where that leap of faith comes from. And it feels like jumping off a cliff. Um, because you do have to make certain sacrifices, but I wouldn't say just quit your job and not have any savings and not have any other forms of income. I think that's, you know, maybe not too smart, but if you are able to do some side jobs and do some side hustles in the meantime and, um, focus your energy where it needs to be, when it needs to be during the day is most important. Um, 
then, you know, it allows you to be. And the other thing I'll say really quickly is a morning routine, which, um, I need to be, that's, that's my, uh, personal, like if anyone's like, oh my gosh, how is she, she's so productive. I am telling myself I can be more productive because my morning routine is not what I want it to be. Uh, I know like a lot of entrepreneur videos on YouTube, but you'll see, you know, you need to get up at five or six and you need to like, you know, affirmations in the mirror and, uh, work out. And it's like really hard for me to wake up early. Right. I'm really, really bad at that. I really hate waking up early. I'm a night owl. I work at night. Um, but I'm trying, but I'm trying to be better about that. Cause I think waking up early is good for your brain. And I think it's good to be up before everyone else's and it's, it's peaceful and it, you know, gives you time. Whereas right now I kind of like get up last minute and I'm rushing around and, I'm still kind of doing that, which needs to stop. But I would, if I could give advice and take my own advice, it would be have a morning routine and um, just kind of make the sacrifices where you need to, but still to be smart financially to make sure it's it's a it's a healthy transition and not um, a super big risk. So, and I have one last question before we wrap up. Um, I'd be remiss if I don't ask because. Um, as you're aware, I mean, you're away now, you're in Senegal, but <laughs> you've already read and you're, I know you're aware of this really polarizing socio-political environment, which we're living in here in the States and throughout the world, right? Where, you know, there's really strong divides along a variety of different lines, whether we're talking about race, we're talking about class, we're talking about gender. Um, and I think today and, you know, in the past, we've had we've been able to talk very candidly about these topics, but there's many individuals who, um, regardless of what their background is, <laughs> are not aware or they're um, they're not willing to engage in these conversations or to admit fault or to be accountable to that nature. So, very quickly, like, what's your takeaway as far as one thing that individuals should bring with them or arm themselves with when engaging in these conversations? Um, how can we have better conversations when it relates to these topics? That was a very good question. Um, I'm not sure I have an answer to that because it's part of the reason I just kind of left. <laughs> I don't really, I don't know. I mean, it's, uh, it's really difficult because the interesting thing for me is that I have uh, an awareness that maybe like from before I traveled and before I left my, um, my comfort zone, I guess, or my sphere of reference is I can remember what it was like to be, uh, a white person in America who didn't have a lot of experience with black people or immigrants. I mean, immigrants, that's a lie. Cause there were a lot of South Asians and people in my school, but, um, we didn't have, we did not have the exposure and even if we did, I mean, I think there were black people in our school, but they, there was no mixing. There was no mingling. They were in their hallway and everyone else was in another hallway. And, um, I remember what it was like to what people say and how people think. And, um, it's very hard once you get the wool taken off your eyes and, you know, the certain realities are revealed to you. It's very hard to go back into those spaces and talk to people, um, and try to convince them or open their eyes and uh, open their span of thought. Because I think some people, they, um, their, their world is just set up in such a way that's like very logical to them. Like they have a framework in which they operate on a day-to-day basis. 
in terms of how they view other, other people and how they view the world. And, um, when someone comes in and tries to jostle that or, uh, break them out of it, it can feel very uncomfortable. So it's a, it's an emotional response. People don't like to be told they're wrong, first of all, and they don't like to be, um, change. They don't like change. People don't like to be, especially when it comes from someone else. So it tends to be, you tend to become the, they tend to, um, what's the word they tend, you, you tend to become the bad guy if you're trying to change people. So I've, I've actually, I actually don't try anymore. And I, I bite my tongue a lot. No, seriously. When I, like I said, these Thanksgiving conversations that happen or when I'm with my family, I just bite my tongue. I mean, I don't know. It's probably not the answer you're looking for. I really ask myself that a lot and I stay connected. I, I watch a lot of like progressive news channels on YouTube. Um, every day I'm kind of like keeping up with what's happening back home. I'll say my very quick take on this. And it's, it's not, this can't be a very rushed, um, cause this is, this is such a huge topic, right? We're talking about race relations. We're talking about, um, community building. I mean, at its foundation for me, sometimes I feel the same. Like we, We'll have conversations as it relates to um, maybe even hiring, making sure that, um, you know, individuals from different backgrounds and socioeconomic backgrounds are are having the same um, possibilities and opportunities to work within the place that we're in. Um, and, uh, you know, there'll be some people who, you know, it sounds like common sense, right? We should have a diverse and inclusive workplace. Some people just, you know, will talk from, you know, more of a logistical standpoint and saying that, um, you know, hey, you know, this is, these things aren't feasible because of A, B, C, D, and E, but provide no solution. So many times when we talk about race and we talk about connection, um, we talk about the problems, but there's no sort of, like you said, these pushes to, to find solutions or at least to hear. Um, many times you need an individual to, to actively listen to your narrative in order for there to be any sort of fruitful conversation in the future. And I think you've, you've kind of described you running into that same wall. So I think that for me is getting people to listen more and maybe myself too, thinking about where, what areas do I need to listen in more as well and maybe not close off. Cause when I think when I hear certain things, I just close up and I'm like, all right, we have nothing to talk about because we're obviously not going in the same direction. I think that, even if we talked about even 10 years ago, this sort of uh, environment in which it was a lot more closed off, a lot more apprehensive to um, having this back and forth and transactive conversations about these topics to where we are now. I'm not, because we're still, like you said, we're in a, in a space that's very volatile right now. Um, you talk about police brutality, you're talking about um, just criminalization on this very high spectrum. You're talking about um, just uh, black and brown kids not having um, just safe spaces to be in. Um, and a lot of these things are, are, are happening in a, in a perpetual cycle. But I think that these conversations and there's a lot of like really active community efforts that are happening, especially even here in SAC with the, the Build Black movement. I know you heard about the Stefan Clark killing earlier this year here in Sacramento. Um, individuals and communities and groups that are galvanizing around this topic 
and trying to shift the conversation, trying to shift these very uh, um, sometimes tragic, tragic and and uh, uh, dark conversations into something that could be of benefit. How how do we ensure that individuals are are not having to deal with the ramifications of past experiences and how we kind of shift the page towards something else. Um, I don't think that answers the question at all, but I think that we're moving towards, uh, prayerfully moving towards a more positive light. Yep. That's all, all we can do, right? Is be very hopeful. Yeah, absolutely. Towards something better. Oh. So, yeah. So Danielle, this has been an enlightening conversation to say the least. Um, and I think that anyone who listened in today is going to understand just a small fragment of your story, but a lot of people can really garner a lot of truth and a lot of uh, understanding from what we discussed today. So thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with us. Yeah. Thank, thank you guys. It was a pleasure. Thank you. So everyone, um, please check out the show notes, please check out, we don't know yet on Facebook, on Twitter, and on Instagram. And uh, we'll have a new show for y'all next week. Have a great day.